I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. The next moderator of the Presbyterian Church will be the Reverend Rob Craig, Minister of Kilfennan Presbyterian Church in Derry, and he'll take up office on the 3rd of June in succession to Dr Roy Patton. On Tuesday, the McAleese report on the Magdalen laundries was released, giving rise to much heated debate, with Magdalen survivors and opposition parties expressing disapproval at what they perceived as the Taoiseach's failure to offer a full apology on behalf of the state. Sinn Féin Deputy Leader Mary Lou MacDonald accused Mr Kenny of circling the wagons. The Godslot will be watching developments. On Monday, Justin Welby, a former oil executive who says he never thought he'd have sufficient experience to take on the Church of England's top job, was formally confirmed as the next Archbishop of Canterbury at St Paul's Cathedral in London. In Los Angeles, Cardinal Roger Mahoney, who retired less than two years ago as leader of the nation's largest Roman Catholic archdiocese, was removed from all public duties by his successor, Archbishop Gomez, as the church complied with a court order to release thousands of pages of internal documents that show how the cardinal shielded priests who sexually abused children. David H. Glass is a physicist and philosopher who believes that the new atheist movement is deeply flawed in its methods, arguments and therefore in the conclusions that it draws. In his book Atheism's New Clothes, he explains why he finds the atheist proposals to be erroneous, their reasoning circular, their use of evidence suspect and their understanding of both faith and philosophy to be woefully inadequate. A lecturer at the University of Ulster, he joins us now in studio to expand on some of these issues and we're also joined by Michael Nugent, the inaugural chairperson of Atheist Ireland. David, coming to you first, just expand a little on your central thesis in your book. The main thesis, I suppose, is that the the new atheists in presenting their case against belief in God have failed to to do justice really to the the arguments on, on both sides of the debate, I might add. Uh, one, one of the things I've been interested in, for example, has been the, the whole interaction between science and belief in God. And one of the things that I have found and many others have argued is that science gives us some of the best reasons for belief in God. And yet when I read the New Atheists, they don't really engage with these arguments at all. They have a uh, a strong negative thesis that they want to state and they assert it using a lot of rhetoric, uh, which is done very well and effectively, I have to say. But in terms of the, the arguments, I think it's very weak. So I wanted to look at their arguments, but also to present a positive case, both for belief in God and some of the central claims of Christianity as well. Michael, do you consider yourself a new atheist? Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, Atheist Ireland is part of an international network of new atheist groups that uh, campaigns not only to promote reason and atheism over superstition and supernaturalism, but also to promote ethical secularism where there's a separation of church and state and where people are perfectly entitled to believe whatever they want to believe about religion, but not to impose that on others and particularly not to uh, kill people, for example, in Islamic states for apostasy. So how do you react to uh, David's book? 
Well, you see, it depends who, I know this is really a cliche to use, but it depends on what you mean by God. I mean, the vast majority of your book, David, is, um, is a reasonably coherent argument about why there may be a cause to, the, to what we know as our universe. Um, but even if you grant that, there's no connection between that and the God of Christianity. You can't argue that the universe had a beginning, therefore it must have had a creator, therefore you can't have gay marriage. You know, there, there's no connection between the, the cause of the universe and any moral position one way or another. Morality is something that, that we come up with ourselves as human beings. There are two, two major points there. One is about the cause of the universe. Now, I, I grant that in arguing for a cause and a designer of the universe, this does not establish the truth of Christianity. It doesn't give us all the characteristics of the Christian God. But having said that, um, the, the arguments are never intended to achieve that. What they're uh, intended to achieve is the, the credibility of the existence of a creator and designer of the universe. And it, indeed, to, to object to this would be a bit like saying, that a detective can't reasonably infer that uh, a suspect was was guilty of the crime if he can't also tell us where he got the, the murder weapon from. But on the question of morality as well, to my mind, morality is something that is objective. Rape, for example, is wrong, not just because we have come up with the idea that rape is wrong, because, but, but rather that this is an objective truth about reality, that it really is wrong. So, so then, given that you believe that rape is objectively wrong, you would disagree with the Bible when it says that a woman who was raped, if she's in the, a, a city and could have cried out, that she should be punished as well. Uh, one of the things that I, I do try to look at, and it is a, a difficult question, some of the, and the new atheists raise this about the Old Testament. Uh, they, they think that the Old Testament is full of, of lots of immorality and, and so forth. There are very clear moral principles in the Old Testament, but I think one of the things that we've got to look at is that this is God dealing with an ancient culture in their context. And his way of dealing with people is one that, develops over time. I think we need to be very careful about pointing to particular texts in the Bible and saying, therefore, um, Christians should believe this or, or something like that. How do you choose which parts of the Bible are just for those ancient people and which parts are for all time? I, I think one of the things I want to say is that this is partly answered by the Bible itself because we get this uh, transition taking place from God dealing with a, an ancient people in their cultural context um, and we see a, a gradual transformation. God doesn't just drop down all the truth at once from heaven or something like that. We see changes in their legal structures over time. We see an emphasis on things like love and mercy and forgiveness and this is something the Old Testament prophets call people to account for. Um, so we see this kind of development but, but also I, I think one point that Michael makes is, is right, that I, I'm not claiming for a second that somebody who doesn't believe in God can have no moral framework. Um, atheists uh, are not immoral people um, in most cases. Uh, they, they can have a, a sense of morality. And I believe that the problem is where they get a foundation for that morality from in the sort of blind purposeless universe that they, they tend to believe in. Well, that's exactly what I was going to come to, Michael. How does the atheist explain altruism and that sense of morality without a higher being, a god of some sort? Well, the first thing to say is that it doesn't come from holy books. And the reason we know it doesn't come from holy books is that the Bible contains a lot of commands that we recognise are good 
Love Thy Neighbour as Thyself, Story of the Good Samaritan. And it also contains a lot of moral commands that we recognise are bad, like stoning a man to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath or stoning a woman to death for not being a virgin on her wedding night. The very fact that you notice that distinction in the first place between passages that you can take yes, that's intuitively right, and passages that you say, yeah, I have to do something with that before I can justify it to myself. The very fact that you make that distinction shows that you're applying your own natural morality to the book. You're not getting your morality from the book. And as to where it comes from, it's a natural evolutionary process. It, 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 it is a process of our brains. It was evolutionarily advantageous to treat others in, in ways that they are likely to treat us in terms of empathy and compassion and reciprocity. David, finally, isn't evolution and science the most natural explanation? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I th- again, with my own background in science, I don't uh, want to emphasise a, a conflict between science and belief in God, science and design. Um, in fact, what I want to emphasise is that, that the two can, can go together. I mean, let's just suppose that evolution um, removes any need for a designer to account for the diversity of life on Earth. Let's suppose that that's true. Does that remove the need for a designer? Well, not at all, because evolution, first of all, requires life to exist in the first place. It requires appropriate an uh, appropriate planet. It requires an appropriate star like our sun and a, a galaxy. It requires various chemical and physical laws to be in place and indeed as I mentioned earlier those laws to be fine-tuned for life even to be possible. So the idea that we can have a scientific explanation on the one hand and also appeal to a designer uh, is not an issue for me at all. I think the two uh, complement each other rather than being in conflict. David H. Glass, whose book Atheism's New Clothes is published by Apollos, debated with Michael Nugent of Atheist Ireland. We recorded that piece last week and we were delighted when the pair spent much of the afternoon in cordial disagreement over coffee. Our Christmas visit to Glenstall provided much food for thought and one thing that exercised the mind of Jerry McArdle was that four-letter word, holy, what does it actually mean? Remembering that Vatican II called all people to holiness and as that period of reflection on the things of the spirit that we call Lent begins on Wednesday next, we thought we'd try to address this matter by asking various people from various faiths and walks of life to tell us what they mean when they use the word holy and holiness. We begin with the Buddhist Vajrashura. Holy isn't a word that we use terribly often in Buddhism because a lot, particularly Western Buddhists, because holy is often tied up with an idea of God uh, or sanctioned by God or associated with God. But Buddhists don't believe in a creator God. So we're a little bit different to the other theistic religions in that regard. When I think of the word holy in Buddhism, I think something of extreme reverence, something that I would have extreme reverence for, such as um, some of the old Buddhist teachings I'd, I'd regard as somewhat holy in that I have extreme reverence for them. But it wouldn't necessarily mean that they were um, sacrosanct or anything like that. They are teachings that have come down to us historically through the ages. So I would consider those to be holy. Journalist Sarah Carey then gave her view. I think being good is a prerequisite of being holy. You have to be good in your actions and in your intentions and what you do every day. But that's not enough. 
I think in order to be holy, there has to be a devotion to your faith and a devotion that is practiced every day. So when I think holy, I think of people who, like say, like priests, like monks, like nuns, or perhaps lay people who maybe attend daily mass or say their rosary or who feel a presence of God in their lives every day. And, and I think if they're praying, they can't just be, say, rattling off their prayers or rattling off the round of the rosary. They have to be very mindful of it and really mean it and really uh, feel a love of God and, and of uh, their religion. And here are some thoughts from a Hare Krishna member, Manudas. You could say some of the holy places, like, like India is, has many holy places, uh, uh, Vrindavan, which is north of Delhi, and it's the place where Krishna took birth. Um, another holy place would be Mayapur, where um, um, near Calcutta, it's another holy place where Krishna appeared. And um, so the holy would have a lot to do with, with the holy place. Or, for instance, a temple. A temple would be considered a holy place, um, principally because the, um, the, the, the spiritual world is, uh, is a world that's very real and existent but it's um, we consider it's covered over by the material world you know lust, greed, anger you know so many of the things that are going on in the world today so the temple is a special place where um, you have uh, the activities of the spiritual world are, uh, are celebrated so we would consider that a, a, a very holy place in the temple Next, we hear from Benedictine brother Anthony, a man who has a great respect for the natural world. Um, in, in one sense, to be holy is to become like an animal, um, to, uh, to be totally without moral law or totally free of moral law. As um, Sean O'Riordan says, within every confinement there is freedom from that confinement. So within the general ropes of the ring uh, of the moral law, um, there is naturalness. Uh, a naturalness which is supernatural. So I think holiness, on on reflection, um, well, uh, well, holiness at at a personal level is love and and love of God. On reflection, perhaps, as a phenomenon you see in others, or maybe, if you dare, see see oneself, but I know which, which is very difficult. Holiness, perhaps, is an understanding that your very being is a gift from God, is a personal gift from God. So your very physical energy, your very body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what I mean by, about being an animal. So that no longer are you living by rules and regulations, and as you say, chanting your chants and looking very holy um, with your phylacteries and so on, but you're actually... Um, the, the actual source of your energies is is uh, are flowing uh, that your energies are actually flowing through broadcaster and journalist pat coyle tells us what she believes holiness is not about it certainly doesn't mean that i don't have negative emotions like being angry or spiteful or jealous it doesn't mean that i may not even find myself hating somebody it doesn't mean that i always do the right thing And I don't think it means being perfect. So the first thing I want to say is that I think that being holy is maybe not what we traditionally, for me, associate with what holiness is. 
Our hostess for our stay in Glenstall was Norini Rian, and this is what she thinks. Being holy is all sorts of things. And of course, holy, H-O-L-Y, but whole, W-H-O-L-E too. Wholesome. Living life to the full. Saint Irenaeus, great uh, first century saint, said one time that the glory of God is every person fully alive. The holy person is a person fully alive, you know. And also I think that is very much to do too with positivity, you know, trusting that the glass is half full, not half empty. You know, seeing the bright side, if you can, as you're going through, you know. And for a more secular view, psychologist and cognitive scientist John Francis Leader. Well, holy for me is uh, something like the word sacred. I like to think of sacred as a kind of a, a more original version of the word holy or maybe a more universal word. And sacred or holy for me can actually be anything, I think. It can be any person. It could be anything. But for me, it's more the way in which that thing is used. When I think of the word holy or the word sacred, I think of using something uh, for its highest purpose. So something that evokes awe, or uh, beauty and examples of that would be music or it could be certain actions and it seems to me that anything or any person has the potential to kind of go either way we can use it uh, in a way that is particularly meaningful or inspiring or a way that's a little bit more mundane so for me to have a holy act or a sacred act is to use something in a way that is I suppose fit for its highest purpose in some ways, you could say, you know, Buddhist, many Buddhists consider the nature of the mind to be holy and that, uh, you know, the mind is just a really amazing instrument and can help us really, you know, if, if developed, it can be a really powerful thing to have and it can really help us live a, a very rich life. So you could say the nature of your mind or your heart is holy as well. Oh, I think um, being holy in your day to day life means that your intentions in everything that you do, in every action, um, uh, become manifest. So um, a holy person is not judgmental. Uh, A holy person has compassion uh, for people who perhaps their only crime is poverty and things like that. So so you can't be a holy person if you uh, go to Mass, uh, say all your prayers and then come out on the street and uh, think that a person is homeless because it's their own fault that they've done something wrong to deserve it so there is a, a mindfulness and a compassion for humanity that is with you all the time and and that that comes from um, you know a, a faith and a feeling that that God is everywhere you could also say that um holy would could, could do with people or persons holy persons and um that that would also have to do with the it, it's also it's considered that wherever a holy person is the holy place is there or even you could say a person carries the temple in his heart a holy person is like that because he's very much um you know aware of of the spiritual world and he he kind of lives in the spiritual world although he's in the material world beginning to become aware of the source of the beautiful sacred nature of all that is and realizing that that source is way beyond me way beyond anything i can name way beyond anything that any mind can ever conceive and that that source nonetheless 
is intimately part of everything that is and it's intimately part of me. That that awareness and moving to that place, that centre in me, is what I consider being holy is. I think it's a question of, of taking the time to stop every so often and asking the question, uh, okay, here I am right now and I have certain things in front of me, certain people around me, I'm in a certain environment, I have an opportunity here to take this particular moment in a few different directions. And for me to be holy or sacred in that moment is to say, what is the best thing that I can do in this moment? What is it that's most important, that's most beneficial for me and other people and the environment I'm in? Of course, holy is often taken on a particularly religious uh, connotation and not even religious in the sense of, of spiritual, but religious in the sense of organized. And unfortunately, that can be negative in some ways. And I think the problem there is when we say a particular person is, by definition, holy. In other words, by uh, having a particular position. Or we say that an object is holy. And there's uh, the principle, I think, of using things for the higher purpose means that something like a, a Bible or... Uh, a holy book or something like that you would maybe respect it but to take it then and maybe use it to uh, to help somebody uh, to use it for example if a person was cold and they needed a fire to be warm in that moment would be more holy or a more sacred act in that moment even though it may seem on the surface to be blasphemy so for me, I think that's the point, is its utility in that moment. It's really living by the principle of something, not having a stock concept of a person is holy. We see that that gets us into so many problems because a person in any given moment, I think, has an opportunity to do something that is meaningful or something that is less meaningful. And if we kind of take it moment by moment, I think we'd be an awful lot safer. Being holy is... Um Minding yourself. John O'Donoghue used to always talk about that lovely phrase. We must mind each other. We must mind ourselves and mind each other. And that's all about uh, being good to ourselves, to exercising, watching the spiritual, meditating. And that's, I mean, that in the broadest sense of actually just sitting there in silence, taking time out to be in silence with your own thoughts, with your own God, with your own divine Various views on holiness from Buddhist Vajrashura, journalist Sarah Carey, Hari Krishna Manudas, broadcaster and journalist Pat Coyle, Brother Anthony, psychologist John Francis Leader, Norini Rian, and as the idea for this piece was conceived in Glenstall Abbey, we leave the last word to the abbot of Glenstall, Mark Patrick Hederman. Only God is holy. The you alone are holy, we say it every Sunday in the Gloria. So... None of us are holy, but each of us are that mystery which we were created to be, which is ourselves. And we were never asked to be anybody else. And those who try to be somebody else, even Jesus Christ, are wrong. Uh, As Kierkegaard says, it's very well put, when you get to heaven, you won't be asked why you were not more like Jesus Christ you will be asked, why were you not more like yourself? So being holy simply means being whole and holy you. And that's it. And our thanks to reporter Rona Tarrant, who gave her invaluable assistance in our quest for the meaning of holiness. 
Ash Wednesday sees the opening of a festival celebrating C.S. Lewis, inspired by his book Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The festival will be launched at Christ Church in Bray by Archbishop Michael Jackson. For more information, contact Christchurch Bray on Christchurchbray at gmail.com or you can phone 0128629968. On Sunday, RTE1 Television on the Meaning of Life, Gay Byrne talks to Christina Noble about the inspiration and beliefs which led her as a homeless survivor of gang rape to become the saviour of countless children in Vietnam and Mongolia. And that's our programme for this week. We always like to hear your comments. Our email is godslot at rte.ie. The phone number is 01208 and the postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Until next Friday evening at the same time, Slán is Banacht. Cause I gotta have faith. Mm.